This morning we start a new series of messages as we move into the season of Advent. This morning we lit the hope candle, the first Sunday of Advent, as we look forward with longing and expectation and joy to the arrival of Jesus as He's born of the Virgin Mary there in the manger in Bethlehem. And so each week we will light another candle uh, as we signify the hope and the joy and the love and the peace and the light that Christ brings into a very dark and hopeless and conflicted world. And so as we walk through this season of Advent together, um, I, I thought no better way than, than to go to Scripture uh, together. And this morning in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 through chapter 4, verse 13 is going to be the text for our sermon this morning. If you don't have it in, the, uh, in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me as we read it together. Uh, but we'll read, it's a pretty lengthy section, um, but we'll read Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, down through chapter 4, verse 13 together this morning. And the author of Hebrews begins in chapter 3, verse 7, writing these words, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As He has said, as I swore in My wrath, they shall not enter My rest, although His works were finished from the foundation of the world. For He has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all His works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would have not spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. This is God's Word. In 1744, Charles Wesley, the great founder of Methodism, wrote the words to one of my favorite songs of the Advent season. And we sang it earlier in our service today whenever we sang, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And that hymn that he wrote so many years ago is filled with all sorts of rich biblical imagery and imagination.
themes that flood our hearts with joy and warm us like a fire on a cold winter's night. Every time I sing that song and I sing of Israel's consolation, the hope of all the earth Thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart, there is a joy that floods my heart and fills my mind that is inescapable and uncontainable. And this song, as it was written by Wesley initially, could be divided into two longer verses or four shorter ones. And so over the next four weeks, what, we want, what I want to do is take us through each of those four shorter verses, so to speak, consider the themes that are there, pull one out and go to the Bible and us consider what the Scriptures have to say because the Bible informed the very words that he wrote back in 1744 whenever he penned those words. And so we want to consider the imagery and savor it together. Now in verse 1 of that hymn, we sang these words, Come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. Free from, from our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Now whenever I think of the season of Advent, whenever I think about the runway to Christmas, one of the last things that comes to mind whenever I think about that is the term Rest. Okay? It's one of the last things that comes to my mind. Because what the things that come to my mind are to-do lists, right? Some of you probably have them on your phone or notes on your calendar, right? To-do list of things that you have to get done. Decorations that need to be hung, right? Stockings to be hung by the chimney with care, okay? Right? We think of all the decoration that we have to do. The shopping that must get done. Because we've got to buy things for people we didn't expect buying things for us. So then we show up at their house on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, we don't show up empty-handed and receive something we not give anything right so we got to go through all the list of people we have shopping lists we have cooking lists meals to be prepared right desserts to be made by the way if you're making desserts this holiday season just give me a call if you have any leftovers i will come and take them off of your hands gladly okay right we got cooking lists you know, meals that need to be purchased and prepared. I think of parties that are being thrown, whether it be life group parties or, or, or company parties that we feel obligated to attend because we've received that invitation in the mail. Or we've got to see both sides of the family. You've got to see mom and dad, right? If you have a divided family, a broken family, you've got to see both sides. Or you've got to see your husband's family, you've got to see your wife's family, your spouse's family. And for the us, that means travel. Right to one side of the family that's three hours away, and the other side that's seven hours away, right? And so we got to get in the car and we got to drive for days. It feels like, right, with gifts and food and children, <laughs> which feels like weeks sometimes, right? We think of all those things. This year, I think of two services in three days because Christmas Eve is on a Friday, and we'll have a Christmas Eve service in here on Friday night, and then we'll turn around again on Sunday morning and have the day after Christmas with the three of you who come, we'll have a Christmas Day service, right? We'll be here again the day after Christmas because it's a Sunday, and we won't cancel church, right? So I think of all of these things, and so when I read the final line of the first verse, let us find our rest in Thee, right? It's like, oh, please, Jesus, give me rest. I don't know if you feel that way as well. And so this morning, I want to help us find the rest that Jesus has provided and purchased for us. And it may not be the kind of rest that we're thinking of. So as we move into the text this morning, I, I, I want us this, our weary hearts and minds, I want us to consider what is this rest that Jesus offers? What keeps us from enjoying it, from entering in it, and then how do we enter into it and enjoy it today? Alright, so what is it? How do we enter it? How do we enjoy it? First of all, what is this rest that Jesus has purchased and provided for us. And in the, in, in the book of Hebrews, in this particular chapter that we've read together this morning, the rest that Jesus offers is this, church. It is the splendor of heaven. It is the splendor of heaven. Let me put it to you like this, like the old preachers and old go southern gospel singers used to say, it's the blessed Beulah land. Right? Some of you remember old school southern gospel churches, right? Singing about Beulah land that was coming one day, 
Right? That's what the author of Hebrews is talking about here in the text, the splendor of heaven. Now, to understand that, let me give you a little context. The book of Hebrews is written by an anonymous author, and it's written to Jewish Christians scattered across the Roman Empire in the first century A.D. And the author is calling on these Jewish Christians because they were facing intense pressure from their Jewish counterparts right, to give up Jesus and go back to a Jesus-less Judaism, right? And so that's the pressure that they were, they were facing. And the author of Hebrews is writing to them saying, don't cave to that pressure to abandon Christ and go back to a Christless Judaism. And so for 13 chapters, the author of Hebrews, he weaves this stunning argument preaches a sermon, essentially. It's how the book of Hebrews reads. And to show the original readers how Judaism, though it was rich in tradition, it was rich in imagery, right? That it was hollow and colorless without Christ. It was hollow and colorless without Jesus at the very center of it. And he does this by weaving this argument and showing his readers for 13 chapters how Jesus fulfilled both not only the moral law, Right, and crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's of all the commands that God had given. But Jesus also fills all, fulfills all of the ceremonial law with the sacrifices and the priesthood and things that were offered on the altar and the individuals who were doing the offering. He, he highlights Jesus as fulfilling that aspect of the law as well. For 13 chapters, this is what he argues for. And in the verses that we find ourselves in this morning, listen, they are verses that cover, that, that refer to events that span 1,500 years of history. 1,500 years of history. From the time in which God says to Moses, go and deliver my people, right? Go and tell Pharaoh to let them go free. And the plagues come and God releases his people through the final plague, the death of the firstborn, the Passover meal, the blood of the lamb that was slain, covering the doorposts of the house, and God brings his people out of slavery, bondage, and captivity in Egypt. Most scholars, conservative scholars, date that occurrence somewhere around 1440 BC, before Christ. Right? So they date that occurrence somewhere around 1440. And then the author, so the author of Hebrews refers to that whole dynamic of God's people coming out of slavery, seeing the Red Sea parted, the Egyptians drowned in their wake as the waters crash over them, and then them, God leading them toward the land of their inheritance that had been promised to who? Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And whenever they get to the threshold of the land, what do they do? They send in... Not ten, but twelve, right? Twelve spies. One from each tribe to go scout out the land to consider how they might go in and drive out the inhabitants who were there. And the spies go in and they take stock of everything that they see in the land. And whenever they return, they return with a report. Ten of those spies return with a report saying, that is a bad place. You don't want any part of the giants who are living there. They will crush us under their thumbs and eat our brains for breakfast. Okay, That's the report they get from ten of the spies. We have no business going in there. The other two spies come back. So they come back with bad news. The other two spies come back with good news. They say that land is exceedingly good. It is flowing with milk and honey. It is everything that God had promised to our, for, our, for, our, our, our forefathers, right? Our, 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 those who came before us, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's everything He promised to them. We should go in. God will fight for us. God will be with us. God will go before us. Who do the people believe? 
They believe the ten rather than the two. So good news comes to them and they reject the good news and they embrace the bad news. And as a result, God says, you, none in this generation are going to go into the land of the inheritance. You'll never set a foot across the Jordan. In fact, you're going to wander in the wilderness and die out here because you refuse to walk in faith, believe what I have promised, and believe that I would go before and fight for you. And so what happens? That whole generation dies in the wilderness. Moses himself is not able to go into the land of promise. In fact, it wasn't until Joshua would come onto the scene and be raised up as Moses' successor that God would then release them to go into the land of promise after those 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Fast forward from the exodus and the that event that is described throughout the book of Numbers. And you get from 1440 to around 1000 B.C. in which the time of King David's reign. Now David was one of the most prolific writers of the Psalms in the Old Testament. Okay, So he wrote countless numbers of those Psalms. Psalms, you know, all throughout the, 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 the... collection of the 150 that we have here recorded for us in the scriptures but one of those in particular that he wrote was psalm 95 right in psalm 95 david writes these words in psalm 95 which are the actual words that the author of hebrews cites in hebrews chapter 3 verses 7 to 11 and they come from psalm 95 verses ironically enough 7 through 11 And he writes, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. So David, 450 some odd years removed from the exodus from Egypt, writes to his generation, pointing back to Moses. Moses' generation and says to his generation, don't commit the same error, don't commit the same sin, don't live with the same kind of unbelief that the generation that wandered and died in the wilderness did. So 1440 to 1000 B.C. And then the author of Hebrews jumps forward another thousand years to his audience. See where I got the 1500 years from now? A thousand years to his audience. And he cites Psalm 95 five times through these verses and repeats several key phrases from Psalm 95 on three separate occasions throughout these verses. He talks constantly about God swearing they would not enter His rest and talks constantly, gives constantly that admonition, today if you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. So the author of Hebrews is drawing on this rich Old Testament imagery. And in verses 7 through 11, he quotes verbatim from Psalm 95, 7 through 11. In cha- and then in verses 12 to 15, let me give you an o- overview here before I get to the punchline. In ch- chapter, chapter 3, verses 12 to 15, the author of Hebrews calls his audience roughly 1,500 years after Moses' generation, 1,000 years after David's generation, to avoid the same sin and failure of hardening their hearts and not entering the rest that God had provided. And we know that God, that, that the author of Hebrews is speaking about Moses' generation because in verses 16 to 19 of chapter 3, he spells out exactly who it was that heard and rebelled. Those with whom God was provoked and those whom God swore would never enter His rest. He says it was those who left Egypt and sinned in their disobedience by refusing to believe the promise of their inheritance. Right? They had seen God part the Red Sea, but they were unwilling to trust that He would fight for them as they entered the land. Then chapter 4 opens with these words, Therefore. Right? Indicating there's a connection here between what I've said previously about this generation, what they experienced, and now what I'm calling you to as these Christians in the early ancient world. And so he draws his experience from the generation that died in the wilderness and failed to enter the land of promise. And then he concludes it in verses 1-7 to of chapter 4 by saying, believe the good news. Right? The good news came to them from the two spies. It's exceedingly great. God will be with us. God will go before us. God will fight for us. And they reject the good news. 
In fact, the author of Hebrews says in verse 2, he says, they received the good news just as you, just as we. Right? But that good news was not united by faith in their hearts, and therefore they never experienced the promise that God had given, the rest that God had promised. Right? And so he tells his audience, believe the good news, unlike that generation that failed to act in faith. He said, they heard it and refused to believe it. He says, don't be like those who died in the wilderness because they refused to believe. And then he quotes Psalm 95 again for the fifth time and calls his audience to hear the voice of the Lord and receive by faith the good news that was being brought to them. And then in verses 8 to 10 of Hebrews 4, the climax of this argument that he's been building since verse 7 of chapter 3, he says this, We're told that if Joshua led the people of Israel into the land of promise that he had given them, if, if, if when that took place, right, if, if what, what happened in that, that he had given them the rest that God had promised, he says if, if that was the rest that God had promised, he says then David, 400 years later, wouldn't have spoken of another day, of another rest that was to come. In other words, the rest that Joshua led the people into whenever they crossed the Jordan River into a land flowing with milk and honey was but a shadow of the rest that God intended for His people. Because David would speak 400 years later about a rest available to God's people if they would trust God's Word whenever they hear His voice. And so the author of Hebrews makes it plain in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 4. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from His. In other words, the author says, when God rested on the seventh day of creation, stepped back and said, it is all good everything that he had made and he stops working and the rest that God had promised and provided for the people who crossed over the Jordan into the land flowing with milk and honey what's the first place they come to whenever they cross the river anybody know starts with a J ends with an O E-R-I-C is H is in the middle Jericho right they come to Jericho and what happens at Jericho right do they lift a finger to overthrow the city. No, what do they do? They march around the city seven times playing horns and trumpets and music, right? They've got a marching band that just won UIL sectionals, right? And they go out there and they march around the city playing all their instruments and the walls come a-tumbling down. And they set the people to, to, to flee. Why? Because God was with them. God's going before them. God's fighting for them. But the author of Hebrews says that rest that He provided by fighting for them was but a shadow of something that David would speak about hundreds of years later in Psalm 95. And ultimately, the author of Hebrews says that Christ would come to bring to His people who heard the good news just as the people heard the good news post-Exodus. Right? They heard the good news. And He says, if you would believe the good news, if you would receive the good news, if you would embrace the good news and not harden your hearts against the promise of God, then you will enter into this rest, not only a land flowing with milk and honey, but you will enter into an eternal rest where you rest from all of your labors, you rest from all of your work, you rest from all of your endeavors, you rest from all of your strivings because they will cease on the shores of heaven because that is the rest that this rest in the Old Testament is a foreshadow of. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying in these verses. This is the rest that God had promised and that God had provided. He says, so don't abandon. Here's where it fits to the rest of the book. Don't abandon Jesus and your confidence in Him, but continue to hold fast no matter the pressures you face from your Jewish counterparts who want you to go back to a Jesusless Judaism. He says, because if you do, you'll be like that generation in the wilderness who never entered the rest. If you abandon Jesus, He says, you will never enter the promised land. 
You'll never enjoy the splendor of heaven. But if you continue to hold fast to that good news that was brought to you, united to it by faith, and believe that Jesus is who He says He is, that He fulfills not only the moral law, but the ceremonial law, He says, then there's a rest that's promised for you that you will enjoy forever. That's good news, church. So the rest that Jesus offers is the splendor of heaven. Splendor of heaven. But what keeps us from it? See, this passage along with the rest of the Bible is very clear that what leads us to forfeit entrance into the rest God has secured for us through Christ, through His death, through His resurrection, and through His ascension is a heart that is void of faith. Of refusing to trust. Refusing to believe. Let's trace that through the passage. It will go a lot quicker than the former one. I promise. In 3.10, the author of Hebrews quotes an Old Testament passage where the Lord indicts the generation which, he had, which had provoked Him. He says, because their hearts always go astray. In other words, their hearts cannot stay straight. Their hearts cannot stay committed to the Lord. Their hearts always go astray. Then in verse 12, he says, he cautions them against an evil, unbelieving heart, leading them to fall away from the living God. He says, this generation, their hearts went astray, and because their hearts went astray, their lives went astray. Because whatever your heart is centered on is going to spill out in your life. Right? And so their hearts went astray, so they led them to disobedience. Not walking in the ways of the Lord. And so the author of Hebrews says, don't do that. Guard yourself against an evil, unbelieving heart which would lead you to disobedience to fall away from God. Further down in verse 19, we read about the generation that came out of Egypt but never made it to the promised land. And, and, and the author of Hebrews says the reason they died in the wilderness in verse 19 was because of their what? Unbelief. Because of their unbelief. Then in verse, chapter 4, verse 1, we're told to fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach the rest He promised. He goes on in verse 2 to say, good news came to the generation delivered from Egypt, but they didn't embrace it with faith. And He cautions His readers not to do the same. And then in verse 3 He says, we who have what? Believed. Believed are the ones who enter the rest that God has promised and provided. Then in verse 7, he says, some who formerly received the news about the rest that God had provided in the land, they failed to enter because of their disobedience. And in so doing, what he does is this. He draws a solid line. Not a dotted line, not a dashed line, not a, not a broken line, but a solid line between a heart that is void of faith and a life that is filled with disobedience that is centered on disobedience. Which ultimately a heart that is void of faith, he says, is the reason that Israel never entered into the land of promise. That generation never entered in. And he says, it would be the same thing for you. If you let go of your confidence, if you let go of your trust, then you will find yourself wandering and dying in the wilderness, never to enter the rest that God has provided. That's what keeps you from it. He says, Amen. Right, that's what keeps every single person who has ever died and not seen the glory of Jesus and awakened on the shores of that blessed Beulah land, the splendor of heaven, but has instead been consigned to an eternity separated from God in a real place called hell. The dividing line between those two things right, is not our moral record, but the dividing line between those two things is whether or not our hearts are filled with faith and trust and belief in God's promise and provision or whether our hearts are void of faith and trust and belief in God's promise and provision. That is the dividing line. So a heart that is void of faith keeps us from the splendor of heaven. 
So how do we enter into it? Listen, church. And this is, this is the, the last major point. I'll give you a few things application-wise under this. You're like, what do I do with all this? I'm about to tell you. All right? Because the Bible tells us. So what do we do with this? How do we enter into this rest? And here's where this text, I believe, intersects with Christmas. You're like, what does it have to do with Christmas? Right? Right? David and Moses and rest and judgment and wilderness and dying. Right? What does it have to do with Christmas? Right? I say this almost every single year, but one of the ways to know that Christmas not only warms your heart with some kind of sweet sentimentality, right? Like a Hallmark card, right? That's how a lot of us approach Christmas. A lot of people in our culture. It's kind of this sweet sentimentality, okay? And we have hot cocoa and a crackling fire with chestnuts roasting and all those kinds of things, right? There's this warm, sweet sentimentality. But the way to know that Christmas has not only warmed your heart, but changed your heart is by the output that comes from a heart that is filled with faith. That is now what the author of Hebrews says, that the way that we enter into this rest is through a faith-filled striving. A faith-filled striving. Look, I, 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 many of you know this, but I, I ran cross-country in high school and in college, ran some track in high school, uh, wasn't, was fast enough to run in college in the, on the cross-country course, not quite fast enough to do it in the mile on the track, but um, I've run a, all I have to say, I've run for a good portion of my life since then and competed in all kinds of races, okay, uh, from the mile on the track up to half marathons. And so in all those different distances, as I trained and prepared for those races, and I towed the starting line in each one of them, and that gun goes off, right? You see the rabbits take off. Okay, you got these folks out there who think that the half marathon is a hundred meter dash. And so they are, right, like a rocket out of the gate. Now, the world class folks, they continue that pace all the way through to the finish line. It's those folks who have been working out at 24 hour fitness and done a count to 5K. Whenever they take off like that, right, they're done after 800 meters. But the interesting thing about every single one of those races is that at some point in that race, right, no matter your level of cardio fitness, no matter your level of musculoskeletal fitness, at some point in each of those races, you're going to hit what the, they call a wall. Okay? And you've got to determine, right, am I going to push through this? Or am I going to give up? Am I going to throw my hands up and say, I'm done, I've had enough, and sit down on the ground and cry tears like a small child, right? Or am I going to push through it, no matter how bad my side hurts? You have those side stitches before, right, where it begins to cramp in that side and it feels like somebody has a pair of pliers and they just got your gut and they're starting to twist it, right? The side stitch comes in, or you begin to cramp in your hamstrings, they get tight, your legs start to burn, with a sensation that feels like you're on fire, your lungs, particularly if it's cold outside, those begin to burn as well as you breathe in and inhale and exhale all that cold air, right? And so you hit that point in the race. But I'll tell you what has kept me going in every single instance is knowing that no matter how bad it hurts right now, that no matter how bad that stitch in my side is, no matter how on fire my legs and lungs are, no matter how fast my heart rate is racing, no matter how parched I feel my throat and my tongue to be, sticking to the top of my mouth because it won't break loose. You know what I'm saying? No matter how bad things are in that moment, I know that whenever I cross that finish line, I'm done. I'm done. There's rest. Whether I've run a mile, whether I've run a 5K, 3.1 miles, 6.2 miles, 9.3 miles, a half marathon, a full marathon, an ultra marathon, whatever I've run, I know when I cross that line, rest is coming. It's coming. And so I keep putting one foot in front of the other. The whole race. And listen, church, if you're still here, your race isn't over. <laughs> you know that, right? 
If you're still here, the race is not finished. I was almost finished by that little thing on the, on the carpet coming up on the floor. You're not finished. And as long as you're still putting one foot in front of the other, you know what? There's going to be some burning legs. There's going to be some side stitches. Your lungs are going to feel like they're at capacity and about to burst. Your heart at times is going to feel like it's racing out of its chest because there's so much resistance and you feel like you're being pushed to the breaking point. Which is maybe where these original readers felt like they were as well as they lost family. As they lost jobs because of their faith. As they lost economic opportunity. As they lost homes. As maybe their children disowned them or their parents disowned them. They were at those breaking points. And the author of Hebrews says, right, in verse 14 of chapter 3, he says, right, for we know that we have come to know Christ if we hold fast to the confidence that we have in Him. We don't let go. We don't stop and sit down and start crying like little children. But we keep putting one foot in front of the other knowing that there is a finish line coming when either Christ returns or I breathe my last breath. Some disease takes my life or old age, or a car accident, when my last breath is exhaled, or Christ rins the heavens and returns, the finish line is there. And I can rest. But until then, listen, in verse, in verse 11 of chapter 4, the author of Hebrews says, strive to enter that rest. What is he saying? Be diligent. Pursue it. Chase it. Right? Have focused, fixed attention on it. You've probably heard before that some people are too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. I want to tell you that is quite the opposite. That if you're really actually heavenly minded and focused on the rest that's coming at the finished line, then you will be of immense earthly good because you will keep putting one foot in front of the other despite challenges, despite opposition, despite persecution, despite hardships, despite affliction, despite turmoil, despite disease, and despite the death of those around you, you will continue to move forward and bear witness to the glory of Christ and the splendor of heaven through this faith-filled striving, not a heart that is void of faith and gives up on the blessings of God, but a heart that holds fast to Christ in the midst of your affliction and hardship and therefore is rewarded one day with the blessings of God because you continue to believe. You continue to trust. You continue to hold fast in faith. Now, in chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, we find some of the most pregnant verses in this book. And I've chewed on these for a couple of weeks now. And there's probably more here than what I'm seeing and going to share with you as we close. But the more that I've chewed on this, the more I see how they are full of application for us. I want to read them to you and then we're going to take a look at them. It says in verse 13, But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold fast our original confidence firm to the end. The author of Hebrews tells us how we ought to strive. And I believe he tells us three things in these verses. First of all, strive daily. It's a daily striving church. Look at what the author says in verse 13. As long as it is called yesterday, as long as it is called tomorrow, as long as it is called today. Today. Back in chapter 3, verse 7, notice the author didn't say, yesterday if you heard His voice. Yesterday, do not harden your hearts. Yesterday, if you walked in obedience. Yesterday, if. Yesterday, if. He says, today, if you hear His voice. Today, do not harden your hearts. Today, receive 
the blessings of God, the promises of God, trust in Him, cling to Him. When? Not just yesterday, whenever you walked the aisle as a seven-year-old child and took the preacher's hand and they put you up in the baptistry and dunked you under and brought you up, but today, continue to hold fast to Christ. It's a daily striving. Today, walk in obedience. Today, See, church, the life of faith is not a life lived in the past. But the life of faith is a life lived in the present, fixed on the future. And so I continue to walk in obedience today because I know there's a finish line one day in which in the same way that God rested from all of His work, I will as well. There's a day that's coming where there'll be no more striving. There's a day that's coming where there'll be no more temptation. There'll be a day that's coming where my eyes will no longer be drawn aside to something that is unbecoming, where my heart will no longer gravitate toward things that are unhealthy and cancerous for my spiritual life. That day is coming, but it's not here yet. And so I will strive daily to fix my eyes on Jesus as the author of Hebrews says toward the end of the book, the author and perfecter of my faith who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of, the, of, of God who is on high. I, I'm going to fix my eyes daily on Him. I wonder how often within, with, with our spiritual lives, right, we read verses like this and we think, well, yesterday I didn't harden my heart. Yesterday... I didn't abandon Christ yesterday. And so we're living in the past. Rather than living in the present, the author of Hebrews says the way that you know that you've come to be in Christ. So what he says in verse 14 is if you continue to hold fast to confidence in Him. Otherwise, if you let go of Him, otherwise, then there's a strong possibility that, listen, you're like the seed that fell upon shallow soil and it sprang up very quickly or on rocky soil. But whenever the heat came, when hardship and affliction and persecution came, what happened in that parable to those plants? They withered. They withered. Because their heart was not full of faith. It was void of it. It sprang up quick with emotions, but it died. So strive daily. As long as it's called today, church, hold fast to Jesus. Knowing there's a day that's coming in which, in which you'll be able to let go. Second, strive truthfully. Strive truthfully. In verse 12 of chapter 4, it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And we often cite this verse to speak of the power of God's word, and rightfully so. God's word is powerful. Right? It's like a two-edged sword. It cuts both ways. Right? It's able to be used, right, as a weapon of our warfare, we're told of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God in Ephesians chapter 6. It is able to be used defensively or offensively against others, but it also comes back to cut us, doesn't it? Yeah. It can divide down to the intentions and thoughts and motives of our hearts. And in this context, if I hadn't... Maybe I shouldn't say this, but it hadn't dawned on me until these last couple of weeks. But in this particular context, which this verse is set, I believe it's set here for a reason by the author of Hebrews, by God Himself. And it's for this reason to show us that indeed God's Word, the Scriptures as He's revealed them, as He spoke by the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, what does He say? For the Holy, as the Holy Spirit says... 
Today, if you hear His voice, the Spirit was speaking through David. The Spirit was speaking through Moses. The Spirit was speaking through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Spirit was speaking through the Apostle Paul and Peter and James. The Spirit was speaking through the author of Hebrews. The Spirit was, has spoken. The Spirit continues to speak through the words that God has provided for us. His own self-revelation. The Spirit is speaking. And as He speaks, that word that He speaks, that word that He's spoken, is able to slice us internally to know and reveal whether or not the striving that we are doing is from faith. Is it from faith or is it from fear? In other words, are we working really hard because we're not real sure what lies on the other side of the finish line for us? And we want to try to level out the balances. But the Word of God is able to slice that and show us, reveal to us where our striving is from fear and where our striving is from faith. <clears throat> Divide the intentions, thoughts, and motives of the heart. In other words, why are you doing what you're doing? So as we strive daily, we also strive truthfully as we immerse ourselves in the Scriptures and allow it, allow the Word of God to divide the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. They don't just divide the thoughts and intentions of your neighbor's heart, of your mama's heart, of your daddy's heart, of your kid's hearts, of your boss's heart. They invite the thoughts and intentions of your heart, your motives, my motives. So strive truthfully, church, in accordance with God's Word. And then finally, strive together. Strive together. In verse 13, the author says, we ought to exhort one another every day. Now, the word exhort literally means to preach. Right? So you're to preach to your brothers and sisters in Christ every single day. Ha! <laughs> Every day, right? That's what the author of Hebrews says. Exhort each other every single day so that no one's hearts, right, grow hard by the deceitfulness of sin. In other words, so you're not led astray to an evil and unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. That's the language that the author of Hebrews uses. But rather, encourage, preach to one, one another with a regular frequency. To remind them, hold fast to Jesus. In other words, there needs to be some rhythms in your life of connection with other people. Other believers who are going to do what the author of Hebrews says later on in the text. Man, it's such a rich book. We need to just do a whole series through it one day. And then I wouldn't have to preach for 50 minutes on these verses. But, I'm breaking them into smaller pieces. But listen, he says later, he says, right, do not neglect the assembling of yourselves together. Why? but spur one another on toward love and good deeds because as you meet together, you're spurred on. As you speak to one another, you're exhorted. It's as if the, very, the words that God has spoken in His Word is we speak them to each other and encourage each other to hold fast to Christ where we're, we're conduits of God's grace in their lives. And for us, some of us to receive that, we need to establish, reestablish some rhythms in our lives. Listen, uh, uh, COVID, <laughs> for all the things that it did, Right? One, of the th one of the things that it did was it broke the rhythms of life for us. Not only just for modern American society, but for the church. It broke rhythms. Now listen, I've never broken a bone in my body. I've torn lots of ligaments and muscles, but I've never broken a bone. But I know people who have, right? And I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express at one point. But when somebody breaks a bone, right, what do they do in order to let it heal? They immobilize it, don't they? They put a cast around it so that it, 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 it can't move, right? And it allows it to heal. They set it and they cast it and immobilize it so that it can begin to grow back together. That plate can, can, can reform and the bone can, can, can heal. And oftentimes it heals at that place stronger than what it was in a, previously. But listen, as we think about the broken rhythms in our lives, listen, there's some in the church globally 
and locally who need to have their lives somewhat immobilized for this season. And what I mean by that is in order to see a healing of those healthy rhythms of life, of prayer and being immersed in Scripture and being with other believers who can encourage me and exhort me, of being present on Sunday mornings whenever we gather to worship. Some of us need to immobilize ourselves for a season where we say, this, right, come heck or high water, right? This is where I'm going to be. That's an immobilization. So you can begin to see those rhythms begin to heal in your life that have been broken by what none of us foresaw in a global pandemic. To come back into the Word of God. To come back and immerse ourselves in prayer. To come back with the community of God. Whether it be through life groups, small groups, community groups, meeting with people in homes, encouraging each other over meals, inviting people into your home, being present on Sunday mornings. Reestablish those rhythms because they've been broken. And for them to heal, it may mean you need to immobilize yourself and say, you know what, for the next three months, I'm going to do this every next 90 days. I'm going to do this every single day. I'm going to do this every single week until those rhythms become the norm again. Because the author of Hebrews says, don't strive alone because you ain't going to make it. Strive together. To enter the rest that Christ has purchased and provided. That one day you cross the finish line and say, I've run the race. I've kept the faith. I'm done. I've held fast. And as I've held fast, He has held fast to me. Because He is so good. Your rest isn't here yet, church. It will be one day. Keep running until it shows up. And it is possible. It's possible because there was a baby born in a manger who is our hope. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we're reminded of the hope of heaven. That our hope is not that all our bills will be paid. That our hope is not that all of our sicknesses will be healed. Our hope is not merely the mansions and houses we sing about waiting for us in that blessed Beulah land. But our hope is the splendor of heaven with the radiance of Jesus as we see Him face to face no longer in a mirror dimly. As we talk to Your Son as a man talks to his friend. As we cross the finish line and enter into rest. Father, I pray today that if there be any in here this morning with an unbelieving heart, one who has been striving out of fear rather than out of faith, I pray that Your Spirit would settle upon it today in conviction of sin and convincing them of the promise of Your Son And for those who have been convinced and they're holding fast to Christ, God, would you strengthen their hands, strengthen my hands today that we might strive every single day to walk in obedience. That we might strive every single day to walk truthfully and know if our striving is actually from faith. And to live every single day striving together 
that, the, that your church would be the most encouraging people on the planet. As we spur one another on toward love and good deeds and exhort one another as long as it's called today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.